This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I am Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. Every week we talk about an episode of SVU, the true crime it's based on. And then we have an incredible guest from every episode. And now we chit chat. We get to hang out like we didn't just FaceTime right before we hopped <laughs> on the Zoom. On the Zoom uh, situation. We went from FaceTime to Zoom. Immediately. Yeah. And then not to brag, we are going to a pool today, but we deserve it. It's like a hundred degrees. I have no air conditioning. I'm sweating in my little box. It's so messy. I I thank God our friends are bringing me a dresser today. Oh my God. (sighs) So many things are happening for you today. A dresser, a pool. Exciting. Yeah. And bleeding from my pussy again, yet again. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Never ends. Has it been a month? Has it? It flies. Time flies. (laughs) Um, well, I was watching TV. I was in a hotel watching my SVU, living my best life in freezing air conditioning. And what do I see on my television? Iced tea and a Little Caesars commercial. I haven't seen that. It was awesome. There were some other celebrities in there. I didn't really pay attention. I was like on cloud nine seeing ice. You know, he he, he needs to keep working. Like, take a day off, bro. You need, but maybe he loves Little Caesars, but it was for the stuffed cheese crust pizza. Oh. And I would dabble. I would, intri- I would be, I, you know what? I'm going to tell you something crazy right now. I've never had Little Caesars pizza. Oh, did you go? Oh, you were rich maybe. No, no. I grew up in an area where I always saw the commercial. I grew up my whole life. Pizza, pizza. Like I remember always hearing the commercial. I never saw one physically. It was like same thing with Sonic. I would see commercials, but they were like in New Jersey, not in Connecticut. I relate to the Sonic. I never was near a Sonic. I've had it twice now though, but Little Caesars in my, where I grew up right near the Blockbuster. Mm. And five dollars. So it would be like you grab a five dollar and then, well, we're 
we have problems, but my friend and I, we would each get our own $5 pizza and then go to the beach and then eat our own pizza next to each other. (laughs) And we weren't even smoking weed at the time. We were not drunk. We were just two girls who loved to eat. Just a coming of age story about pizza and friendship. Yeah. Well, you know, our friend CJ loves pizza. It's like one of his personality yes. traits. He's a literally, kid. Basketball, literally, pizza. I went to see the, the NBA finals with CJ a couple nights ago and a Pizza Hut commercial came on and like three of his friends turned to him and they go, CJ, Pizza Hut. Like just a commercial <laughs> for Pizza Hut came on. No, and don't you get to like I get messaged. I mean, we get messaged SVU stuff every day, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but on my own time, I do get like simpsons my oh my god miley cyrus has a new shirt it says miley cyrus made me realize i'm gay (laughs) i feel like that's my like i I could sue her i've said that yeah you know right yes (laughs) i was gonna say there's a lisa traeger line of merch and miley cyrus inc that's wild (laughs) Uh, wait but what were we talking about before oh when you know about stuff pizza yeah so for his birthday one year um me and this girl um we got him a pizza cake and it was strawberry shortcake and the pepperonis were fruit roll-ups and the cheese was like shredded white uh, chocolate. And it was like, it oh, wow. was a delicious, beautiful cake, but then everyone just wanted pizza and everyone's like, Oh, like <laughs> when something looks like something else in a cake, you have to make sure it's not also a delicious treat. Right. That drunk people would want in the middle of the night. <laughs> yes. Like when they were doing that thing of like cutting cakes and like they really it's like really a hand or whatever. But it would be like a soda can. And I'd be like, I want a Coke now. Yeah. You know, like a soda can cake. I just can't believe. Yeah. The Bigfoot pizza. They had great marketing. I mean, let's try it. I was never Pizza Hut. I never had Pizza Hut until like adulthood. I had Pizza Hut only growing like my life. Really? Pizza Hut for me was personal pans at the airport. That was like the only time I really did it. But I'm excited to try Little Caesars iced tea approved stuffed crust with you. I'd be I'd be delighted to try it. There's one there's one literally basically between our houses. There's a Little Caesars. So I don't know why we're not. The neighbor gets it constantly. I see uh, her with a box all the time as I wave. Hot and ready. As Marcella yeah. Arguello says, hot and ready is for the people. Um <laughs> I was going to say, speaking of iced tea, our girl, because you know that our Instagram is also a baby Nicole, a baby Chanel Nicole Stan account. And iced tea's daughter, Chanel, is having a moment where people are like suddenly waking up and realizing that she has iced tea's exact face, which (laughs) we've obviously known forever. But everyone's like, no DNA test needed. It's like, yeah, no. Have you guys what? She's like six years old. Everyone's behind on this. She's always looked exactly like iced tea. Well, yeah, it's kind of like the Maloney ass. Like, yeah, no, we've been knowing. Yeah. (laughs) But also, yeah, they're in love. That is the dad and that is the mom. I mean, I don't think, you know, like he's not having babies out of or she's not like this. Right. They're they're together. No. And like, they're really cute. I heard Chanel and and Coco are cute. They do like I'm not even for like matchy matchy outfits with mom and daughter. But when they do it for some reason, it's like cute to me, like. I actually I saw know. a mom and daughter wearing matching mustard yellow dresses on the street this week. And I did give him a compliment. <laughs> What'd you say? I said, you guys look cute as hell. No, I didn't say <laughs> hell. She was like a child, but I said, you guys look really cute. You can say hell in front of my kid. I said, what the fuck? There was a Prius in front of me swerving this morning. And I go, what the fuck? And Rosie goes, what the fuck? And I was like, 
um, don't say that. Like, I don't even try to discipline language. No, because it's like what I talk about with TVs, anything with nanny, like if you make it a big deal, they're going to want to say it. Yeah. Like, because I remember with my friend who's an amazing parent, we were listening to a song and like, like one of the other parents at the party said something and she goes, I don't care. Go fuck yourself. If we make a deal of it, then they'll get excited. But if you don't care, why would they care? I'm just going to be so lax about language. I can't even I guess I'm going to have to have a conversation at some point of like, you can say that at home, but you can't say it at school. I don't know. No, but also what's fun. What's more cute than a kid saying fuck? Oh, it's so cute. She says it with such gusto. She's like, what the fuck? Like, it's great. Yeah, I don't believe in uh, censorship. (laughs) (laughs) Um. There's also you told me that there is a Dick Wolf movie coming out. Well, yeah, but I did. I also wanted to say that I don't know if we watched this. I don't know where anything is anymore. But I see in an interview said that like he uh, is really scared for Coco because she's going to really miss Chanel when she goes to school. Okay, like they spend a lot of time together. He's like they're really best friends and she's really not excited for her to start school. But you know what? That's going to be a time for Coco to like take off. Coco's going to like come up with some product she's going to start selling or she's going to like have her own business. Like, I'm not worried about Coco. I mean, that will be like emotional, but I bet you it'll be like a time where she kind of steps into her own power. If she put out a workout DVD, I would pay attention. Launch a swimwear line for like lady girls with big tits. I'd love that. Hello. Yeah. (laughs) um yeah i saw wildly a preview i don't know how it came to me probably the algorithm but there's a (laughs) dick wolf ridley scott court movie coming out with the guy from star wars i know there's a lot of star wars and a lot of guys but john boyega (laughs) yeah the cute guy that's like he was like the young new star too, like one of the last couple of star wars i'm like star wars illiterate so you know who i'm talking about well we figured it out together yeah. but it looked great and i think we'll probably see it opening night and if we if we get rich by the time it comes out we'll rent a whole theater <laughs> i love when i see that on twitter i know it's usually for poor people like hey if you're in this community i bought this yeah. theater out we're just gonna be like if you're an svu freak even if you can afford it you can get come. on down here yeah <laughs> so stay tuned for that All right, let's get going. I'm really excited about today's episode. Oh, yeah. All right, let's do it. So we're going all the way back and we're starting with season two, episode 20, Peak. I would say one of our most requested. Not as much Mm. as murderous identical twins, but very close up there. Yes. No, people have definitely asked for this baby a lot. And I understand it. It is mm. um, a very good episode and star-studded. It <laughs> opens on Melinda Warner and saying tag and bag. So I love some poetry um, next to a dead body. <laughs> this body is found on the water with a beautiful view of the city behind her. And they're showing us the city and it's great. But then, you know, also bad things happen and you will be washed ashore. Maloney and Benson show up saying, hey, what's up? What's the scoop? And Maloney says, what's up, Doc? And I get it because she's a doctor, but also Bugs Bunny. They're just cracking a lot of jokes for there being a (laughs) dead woman. Um, I didn't realize, but I do love watching Olivia put latex gloves on. So she's getting ready to touch the woman, even though the meds, the Emmys there, whatever. Um, Though we find (laughs) out the victim's name is Veronica Tandy. She's 34 years old. She was stabbed in the back and raped from behind. And there's a bruise on her neck. So she was yoked. Yikes. 
And then back at the examiner's office, there's no DNA found, but there's spermicide from condoms is found. And then also Warner's like putting organs onto a scale and like it looked like a liver. Like she was just holding a lot of organs. <laughs> I remember that. That, that usually yeah. doesn't happen. And it's not like they're going to donate them because that would have to be faster. So I don't know why she has to weigh all these organs out. I bet you it's part of the autopsy process is like, wait, I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know. It felt fucked. Oh, but yeah, you're right. It was for a purpose because they did find a single fetus present. Oh, and yeah. The fetus is seven to eight weeks old. And then the cause of death is cardio failure because she when she was stabbed in the back, it collapsed a lung and then she died from her heart stopping and it was a giant knife. Ugh. Brutal. Can we just can I ask you a quick question about the condoms? Do all condoms have spermicide in them? Maybe not because maybe some people are allergic to spermicide. Okay. I was just wondering that. But why wouldn't you? If you're going to use a condom, might as well yeah, murder the sperm. Yeah, kill those sperm. Right. <laughs> make, it a, make it a sperm murder scene if you can. I guess if you're doing like in vitro style on your own with a baster, maybe someone jerks off into the condom and then without spermicides, then the sperm doesn't die and then you can use the sperm in the condom. <laughs> I don't think that's what manufacturers were thinking of, but I think I, there's for sure non-spermicide ones. Okay. It says, in fact, most condoms do not have it. Yeah. And I, I feel like you have to like buy spermicide and like add it sometimes, which is. But why would weird... you always want to? Well, I gave an example of why you wouldn't. So I understand why not always. <laughs> that but... one extremely common example. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry to interrupt you. Move on. Uh, no, it was important stuff, girl. <laughs> we need to know about um condoms. Um, I saw our Steph Tolov on TikTok. She did a TikTok that she's sick of guys having Magnum condoms that don't need them, and I didn't realize that that's a thing that happens. Like, are they dilute? Like, what do what do guys think is going to happen? It's going to slide off. Yeah, I don't know. And, and like your dick will look smaller. And no woman is looking at what condom you're putting on. They're not like, sweet, a Magnum. Yes. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I just have never even noticed. Like, just get it on. Her TikToks are funny. Yeah, she was just like, I, but I see it. Like, I don't know. Uh, so that's just something. Has this happened to you? Let us know. <laughs> uh, we do meet the victim's husband. He is sad. He's crying. But of course, they think he's guilty immediately. And Benson, at this point, she has short, spiky hair, gym teacher chic. The highlights are popping. Um, the husband is screaming. You were supposed to be home. He's banging on the glass. Um, and Benson does give him a loving embrace, which I really enjoyed. And then we cut to the credits. We come back from the credits and we're in the interrogation room. And the husband says that they were supposed to meet last night. She didn't show up at 7 p.m. dinner. He did call her assistant who said she left early around 4 p.m. Um, but he wasn't suspicious of anything because he's she is head of personnel for a company that manufactures gaming software. So he thought maybe she was out recruiting um, and didn't think of it as a big emergency when he's asked, like, are people mad at her? Or does she have any enemies? He says, well, she fires people. So everyone that she fires is mad at her. So he thinks like maybe a fired lunatic uh, did want to attack her. Um, he's still really sad crying and is like, what am I going to do? How am I going to tell my kids? And that's a nice thing to it add is, in. Yeah. I think sometimes you forget that you then go have to tell your kids your mom was murdered. Uh, so that sucks. Yeah. I really hope Jared never has to do that. Yeah, I think we all think that. Um, we yeah. all uh, do not. <laughs> I hope no one we know has to do that. Even enemies. 
I yeah. Would, yeah. <laughs> Even the worst. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cause you know, the kid, it's not, you know, maybe we want to like, uh, make a parent feel like shit, but we don't want to punish children. I don't have any children enemies, I would say. I have none of those. <laughs> the very opposite, actually. You have a fucking fan club that's gaining by the day. <laughs> I know. It is really silly. <laughs> oh, what's this woman who does the least amount for me? She'll be my favorite. Yeah. Um, Maloney uh, then asks, like, hey, your wife's pregnant. And he goes, what are you talking about? So... He didn't know that his wife was pregnant yet. So, of course, they're suspicious. So Benson and Stabler are now talking to Craig in, And at first, um, I only noticed like, oh, Olivia's wearing a turtleneck. But then her nipples were hard. And I did see it. Um, I don't know if this is disrespectful to our, you know, matriarch. But <laughs> if you want to zoom in. <laughs> <laughs> like the criminal on this show, actually, we'll find out. If you want to pretend you're the criminal. Um you can zoom in on her hard nipples. Okay. So then Cragen <laughs> tells, it would be funny if Cragen's like, yo, your nips are hard. Are you pumped <laughs> to see me? But <laughs> he doesn't. He just, um, he tells them to go talk to recently fired people. He's going to get a psych profile going. Um, and Benson and Stabler, like I said, they're suspicious because the dad didn't know about the pregnancy. Um, do they need to establish paternity? We will see what happens. The detectives had to comp you game. And her coworker is so sad and said everyone loved her. People were mad at her, but it makes no sense because the department heads actually decide who gets fired. She's just the messenger and you shouldn't, you know, kill the messenger literally. Um, but of course, she said everyone is mad at her no matter what. Um, but she also said everyone loved her. So I, this woman it does make makes no sense. Yeah. Everyone loved her, but everyone's messages. mad at her. So yeah. I don't know. But this woman did like her. But five people have been fired within the past three months and they were mad. So. They're going to go talk to these people, obviously. They talk to another person from the job and they call her Ronnie. So they call Veronica Ronnie. And I kind of like that. I've never heard that before. I call oh, yeah. my, we used to call her from Veronica Vern. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Or in Russian Verulia. Oh, it's even prettier in Russian. Yeah, but never a Ronnie. So um, the friend also did not know that Ronnie was pregnant. And she was just like, there's no fucking way she's having an affair with Jason Mayberry. So we find about this Jason Mayberry guy. We want to know more information. Is he having an affair? Is he not? Are they friends? Is he mad? Is he the killer? We don't fucking know. We do find out, however, that Ronnie is a bleeding heart and she likes to help people and the friend does not like that Olivia is insinuating otherwise. So Benson is confused, however, because Jason did send her flowers and the friend said it's because Ronnie talked to some people and gave recommendations and Jason felt grateful for that. And recommendation for what? What's going on? Jason wanted to be a police officer. So is he going to the police academy? What's going on? We don't know. So now Stabler's talking to the head of security um, who looks like that was like Jason's direct boss. And the head security guy thinks that he quit the job because he was embarrassed um, because his mother would come in all the time and call and bust his chops in front of everyone. And he was she was just like a, a hovering mom that wouldn't leave the, his our adult son alone. And so where is Jason now? Can we get an address? We get an address in Jersey for him. So, and we also find out that uh, a man named Greg Spector could not stand Veronica. So Jason turned Greg in uh, to Veronica because Greg was using security care 
cameras to zoom in on women and be a creep. Where is Greg now? Working in sanitation. So Benson and Stabler go down to talk to Greg, who is surrounded by tons of garbage bags. And he's like, Jason lied. And that Jason's actually the fucking creep, not him, that he was not zooming in on anyone. And he caught Jason doing it. And then Jason like covered his tracks by saying Greg was zooming in on women on the security cameras. But he does seem really shocked that Veronica's dead um, and he was home alone. So no alibi. So that's dangerous. It could be all put on him. Um, but he said that Veronica came to see him a week ago to get his side of the story because she started to feel like maybe something was up and it wasn't fully Greg. So Veronica does uh, cover her bases and seems to be very she was very good at her job. We could say that. And that Veronica actually called to try to get Greg back and reinstate it into his job because she thought that Jason was the creep. Um, so, yeah, like a bleeding heart, always trying to do the right thing. So Jason is a rich boy. If I was a rich boy. So <laughs> Benson and Stabler are like a giant, rich, opulent ass mansion. Um, there's a maid dressed in classic maid gear and gold everywhere it's just very opulent and very wild and the mom says he doesn't come home often because of the um the home reminds him of his dead father so he doesn't really love it there and the mom like any rich person aggressive cocky i don't like you don't tell me shit yada yada benson's like do you know what obstruction is madam i always remember this line where she goes i don't like cryptic conversations they require <laughs> a prevaricating nature that i do not possess i like always remember that line from this episode well i'm glad you remembered it because i didn't write it down because i was not about <laughs> to learn how to spell that word so i'm glad that was just on the tip of your tongue what is it pervade i was like i'm not spelling this i can't <laughs> i think i wrote she was bitchy and argumentative like that's all i could <laughs> That's how I said it. Um, but then, you know, obstruction. This is a murder trial. And we need to fuck. This is a murder investigation. We need to talk to your fucking son. Yeah, they straighten her right out. Yeah, it's like <laughs> we don't care. Someone is murdered. Like, fuck you and what you like and don't like. So the mom puts her teacup down um, and they cut to a shot of Benson knocking on an apartment door. The unit number is 16. So it made me think of my super sweet 16. One of the best shows ever. <laughs> did you watch it um like you know i i caught a couple episodes oh that's wild it didn't grasp you not really but my co my cousin and i are obsessed with the um scarlett johansson snl sketch they do of it that i have not seen and it, it's like i wish you could see how dumb you look right now give me a thousand dollars that's like what a kid <laughs> says to their dad <laughs> okay so <laughs> Who opens the door of Unit 16? Chad motherfucking Lowe. So Hell yeah. Chad Lowe is there. SVU legend, I would say. And legend in his own right of he's lots of different done ways. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. So he's wearing a long sleeve button down shirt. Nerdy vibes. Um, I wouldn't really expect him to be working security or wanting to be a cop. So, you know. You can't judge a book by its cover, I guess. Um, he doesn't want to let them in because it's messy, which I do relate to. And Stabler's like, we don't mind. And Chad Lowe, like his mother, quick, quick for with the sass and goes, well, I mind. OK, oh. so Stabler suggests heading down to the precinct and Jason responds. Greg Spector hated her. And Benson goes, we already talked to him. So not going to work on us, babe. And Jason is like, I don't see how I can help you. And Stabler plays this game um, where it's like, we really need your help. Help us find this guy. It's for Veronica. We need you. We need you so bad. There's like multiple times where they have like hop wannabes and they're just like, 
we need your help to help us solve the case. Like it's like treating a little kid like they're a superhero or something. Well, also, if it's just like it doesn't even have to be someone that wants to be a cop like any guy. Remember that episode where the Marine. Yeah, the Marine. But also there's a South Park. um, The season like during the Clinton Trump election, that season like is incredible. And they trick all these incel trolls from the Internet. They're like, we need you to help us. And all these guys think they're James Bond and they all arrive. Like every guy thinks that he's just one ask away from helping the CIA, you know? Um, (laughs) So true. Yeah, they're not questioning it at all. Um, And I feel like I would fall for it, too. So I'm not this isn't. a full man hating moment. And I think I've even talked about the South Park before, but <laughs> I definitely um yeah, if I got a call. Well, yeah, if they were like, Lisa, we've heard your podcast. You obviously know a lot about murder. We're gonna need your help with this case. Um, we need a new set of eyes, and I feel like you're the one that has I would the go. Info. You I know, would you'd go. be like, I would go. Well, it's my duty. Um <laughs> guys, I can't record today. I'm helping with an investigation. Oh, I would I would totally do that. Um, Cragen introduces the detectives to B.D. Wong, a.k.a. George Wong, a.k.a. Yes, you are right. This is an introduction to B.D. Wong. This is his first episode of SVU. So this is immediately iconic canon. This is his first episode. He's wearing glasses, a lot of layers. He's ready to work. <laughs> and Wong has some input, of course, you know, and the detectives don't want to listen. They hate science. They hate reason. And they hate anyone that's going to tell them, don't just punch a suspect in the face. So he tells Stabler, like, you should go at him alone because he has a problem with women. And Benson says, yeah, all rapists have a problem with women. Uh, We don't need you, Uh, but I'll sit this out. But excuse me. And he was like, listen, this person's extremely shy. He attacks people from the behind. And Stabler wants to argue and goes, that's to conceal, not shy. And Huang is like, "Okay, but your man isn't bold. No one notices him, did they? Um, He seems pretty humble and eager to please even shy. Uh, so cocky, chill, love it. Like, I love that. I love his vibe during this. And, um, since he applied for the police Academy multiple times, they already have a psych eval on him. So Olivia's going to go do that. And then Stabler talks to Craig and is like, George just got here. I don't fucking want to talk to him. I don't understand. Blah, 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 blah. Classic, classic, classic from the get go. They need a confession. They have no evidence. So Stabler really has to go at Jason and like pretend that they're friends. So Stabler and Jason talk about how the coffee sucks at precincts. You got to get used to it. If you want to be a cop, he's like, whoa, how'd you know? And he goes, well, when there's star applicants, we all know Um, all the cops. We're all talking about the new hotshot students. Um, And Jason (laughs) believes it fully. And yeah, Stabler is like a spider. You know, he's weaving a little web for this idiot to fall into. And then he goes, hey, you know, I'll help with the application even. Give me your info. I'll I'll work this out for you. There must be a snag at the at the application center. So Jason's smiling. He's pumped. He wants to be a cop. Stabler says something about his mommy paying his bills. And he goes, she does not pay my bills. I have a trust. But that's the same, right? Pretty much. I mean, like he probably got the trust from like his dad dying too. Or he, you know, but it is still family money. You're not like earning it, the money that you're spending. Yeah. Is, but do rich kids is that like common do rich kids think a trust is not your parents paying for also if i had a trust i would be grateful i would be like yeah 
Yes. Never have to work again. Mom's money. I don't care. But I guess he has a lot to prove. And Stabler's like, well, why would you even want to work at all? This makes no sense. And like, why quit a place where everyone liked and respected you? I don't understand it. Jason says you'd prefer not to talk about it. And so Stabler needs to play the game. Goes, maybe you quit before they could fire you. Maybe security camera stuff, you little fucking creep. Um, and he goes, no, that's Greg. I never did that. So it's like, then why did you quit? Fucking tell us. Um, so there's a deep sigh. And he says that he was being sexually harassed, but didn't want to get the woman in trouble. So he had to leave. He said Veronica was sexually harassing him. Veronica's husband now is in the precinct. Uh, we're so close to uh, <laughs> one of those moments where everyone meets in the hallways. It doesn't happen. But we have uh, Veronica's husband's holding like an open package box situation and he's disheveled. He's sad and he's trying to talk to Benson and Benson's like, I'm busy. OK. And it's like, um, his wife was murdered. I don't know what you're so busy doing, but can you just give him a fucking couple seconds? And so they continue with the show and tell. And basically he explains how his camcorder broke. So his wife bought him a new one as a present and it showed up as a surprise and he goes, you know, you've been digging around, dirtying my murdered wife's name. Read the card. Read the fucking card. And the card says um, something about like baby number four is on your way. Shoot until you drop. Have fun. So there was no affair. She was waiting to surprise him with the baby news. There's no secrets. There's no nothing like that. Like, truly, she just wanted to tell her husband that they were going to have a baby in a cute way with the present. Aww. So BD Wong is in the background of the scene the whole time holding the coffee cup, doing incredible background work so now we cut to <laughs> olivia she's wearing a red scarf for no reason and she's talking to a cop teacher who um, has the scoop on why jason is not allowed to be a cop and so he barely passed the physical and not even close to passing the psyche val he goes super aggressive when stressed and benson is like aren't most cops so that's a read <laughs> and benson brings up don't most psychopaths know how to fake it and pass a psych test and the cop teacher daddy says oh Oh, yeah, that's why we know he's a f I don't I didn't know the saying. He goes, that's why he must be a real secret squirrel. <laughs> yeah, what is that? Well, because now I know squirrel friends and squirrels have little. Oh, nuts. Secret squirrel. The squirrels get nuts. It's a secret nut. Maybe. Yeah. OK. <laughs> that's just okay. I don't know. But um, <laughs> that's why RuPaul calls them squirrel friends because they hide their nuts. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. <sighs> Benson is confused why there's two letters of recommendation in the file. And he says, well, one is a glowing review and one is actually this woman pulling her support. So done, done. You know what I mean? So she gave a glowing <laughs> review and then said, nah, never mind. Actually, he's a fucking squirrel. So... <laughs> Yeah, we, we say insane and crazy too much. Maybe we'll switch to squirrel. We'll just start <laughs> calling everyone squirrely. squirrel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> chipmunk oh yeah or chipmunk or everyone chipmunk. will get wet <laughs> um so back to stabler and jason they're having a full day at the interrogation room jason says i'm tired and stabler's like yeah but i need you here we gotta do victimology together i need your help so they're dancing back and forth he's obviously lying stabler's playing games so basically, it's like no one believes that this hot, married, happy woman that's successful as hell would be with you. OK, but so during this like dance and game, blah, 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 lies back and forth. We're in interrogation. 
Jason lets it slip. So Chadlow's character lets it slip that he knew she was pregnant. So immediately it's like the legally blonde uh, per moment. It comes to Stabler. How'd you know she was pregnant? She told me. She told you, but not her husband. Didn't tell anybody else but you. So wait. So you were close or would you not close? Like, what's going on? When yeah, did she tell yeah, you? Yeah. And then he goes, I don't really remember. And then Stabler's beeper beeps. I bet there are people listening to this show who've never even heard or seen a beeper in their fucking lives. Yeah. I didn't know 2002 even had beepers. I thought we were post the beeper game. <laughs> My mom had a beeper forever, but she's a doctor. I know, but she had one way after she had a cell phone, but she's a doctor. She stayed in the beeper game. Yeah. I don't know. Doctors are allowed to have beepers and like taxi drivers, (laughs) but no one else. Um, So then we get Cabot. We have Cabot behind the glass. And now that I know that like Wong and March are friends in real life, it is really special to see them together. Like, yeah, I get really happy um, and we need her on the podcast. Let us know what Cabot centric episode you would like us to. cover. Yeah, yeah. We'll put up a thing on our Instagram stories, too, of like, tell us your favorite Cabot today. Yeah. We'll do that. So then yeah. we can approach her. And then if she. But well, now we're friends with everyone. So hopefully Diane or Wong will be like, bitch. I don't care if you don't want to. You got to come on. We're obsessed with you. (laughs) Um, So she goes, we can't hold him. Stabler walks in, goes, excuse me. Like he just became a cop. Um, And so he's mad. He's like, what do you mean? Let him walk. That bastard knew she was pregnant and killed her anyway. And she's like, no, I know I'm on your side, but you can't force him to stay. And without a Miranda, it's admissible. And Cragen's like, you're tying our hands. And it's like, yes, there are laws. What do you want her to do like we know he sucks but get a confession or mirandize him and arrest him but there's no evidence like fuck off i just hate when they get so mad at these lawyers and yell and do they (laughs) yell at barba the way they yell at these women i don't know i don't know barba's like so plays it so chill yeah he's always condescending and making a little riddle or rhyme he's like a little troll under a bridge Uh, like i can't think of a time of him ever yelling back he's just like Actually, subsection 34, you know, like he just like kind of knows everything. Um, So Wong um, gives Stabler more scoop uh, and he says, this guy hates women. Get on his level. The nastier, the better. He wants to talk. But like then Stabler's like, won't he catch on? And uh, Wong's like, yeah, but who cares? It's worth it. Like, who cares if he catches on? So Stabler comes in, pulls up his sleeves. And this is like an SVU bingo moment. You know, there was a bingo board. This would be on it. Um, and Sabler does a great job. He's just like, oh, my bitch wife, 16 long, dry years of marriage, too many kids, creditors. If I don't give her the credit card, she doesn't fuck me. And then Jason's <laughs> able to guess how old the oldest child is, which is 16. So that's a running 16 theme. And Ooh. Stabler's like, wait, I don't. Why'd you know that? And Jason's like, you're a fucking cliche, bro. You're a responsible guy. You know, you got caught up, you got her pregnant and she was just she's looking for a free ride and now your life sucks. So whatever. But you love your job, don't you, baby? And he's like, I love my job. You know, I love putting bad guys away. So they're like bonding and he's not catching on to what's happening at all. 
But then, so basically Jason's like, but you like to put bad guys away. And Sandler says, yeah, but I actually want to know why. I like to know why they end up that way, which is not true. Because anytime Wong wants to bring in an idea, he doesn't listen. So it's like, (laughs) you actually don't care at all. And when someone gives you a reason, you go, no excuses. So uh, whatever. So Stabler flips it up again and tries to get Jason to talk by saying there's no innocent victims. There's always a reason why. I'm an experienced detective. And women are it's always at fault and there's always a reason why they are attacked and so he's just basically throwing this fishing line into the pond and seeing if jason takes a bite so jason starts talking about veronica she was a bitch she took my dreams away she wrote the academy to the academy and said i wasn't fit she wanted me to meet her outside of a store and said if i slept with her then she would fix it but i couldn't do that i didn't want to do that to her husband i wouldn't have like disrespected him that way sabler asks which department store he says crazy bobs on lex um so it's an electronics (laughs) store which i like uh crazy bobs so now we cut to benson and benson goes to fortress armored cars to talk to jason's new boss at the job that he went to after he left that video game place so he says he's going to the police academy after only working there two weeks the boss is kind of annoyed um benson asks if he was a good employee and the boss says i suppose but he was a real chatty kathy about his girlfriend ding 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 you know clue so the boss says there's all these photos of women in his locker and he goes but if you want my opinion this woman doesn't even know he exists and there's no doors on the lockers and i kind of love the boss he goes if they got something to hide they can leave it at home that's great yeah yeah i don't care what i i don't know i just i like this boss he seems like a reasonable guy um so at, at his locker there's all these photos of veronica from the security cameras they're all like her in a distance and there's the candids of like close-ups of her boobs so benson calls and goes get us the search warrant bitch so they go to his apartment and there's tons and tons of boxes of condoms so many condoms um and then also like through digging in the closet, Benson sees there's all this women's clothing. She goes, I didn't know there was a roommate. Maybe he's a cross dresser. I'm not really sure. And then there's a shirt that says GM on it. So there's a monogram on one of the shirts. And the text says, yeah, there's also like women's underwear in the laundry basket. What's going on? And then on top of the cabinet, there's a bunch of bloody hat pins with locations written on them. And uh, Benson says, like, walk the panties through the lab, rush the DNA. Let's get these hat pins tested. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Move, move, move. And then Stabler, now it's time. It's game time, baby. It's quarter four. You've been holding out on me and I don't like being played. I respected you and you're treating me like a bitch. Um, You're just like those women that lie, but you don't lie to me. You need to stop lying. And it's just really great. And then when Jason says, I want to go home, Stabler does a full like act out. And is like, oh, I want to go home and pretends to cry. Um, He starts throwing. Throwing the photos from the locker one by one onto Jason's face. It's a really good scene. And um, 
So Jason's like, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. But then Stabler goes, wait, you are, dude. Did she harass you or is she your girlfriend? You can't have it both ways. And Stabler says like, yeah, you can leave if you want to leave, but you're going to seem guilty. Just like all the all the games. And they're like, and the press is going to like scrutinize you and your rich mom is going to be mad. And Jason is like, I love Ronnie. She was going to leave her husband to be with me. And she couldn't because she got pregnant. And that baby could have been mine. And Stabler goes, no, 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 there is no baby. There is no mother. Everyone is dead. You yoked her. You raped her. And when she pleaded for her life, an unborn child, you stuck your knife into her back. Admit it. I do love St- this is the thing with Stabler in this moment. I'd have sex with Stabler. You know, I'm not, <laughs> mad, not mad at him anymore. Chadlow screams, I did not kill her. It was someone else. And I want a lawyer. Uh Oh, this is not good. Um, but Stabler doesn't get him a lawyer and basically keeps playing games with him. And it's so annoying. Um, so he's turning and screaming. Stabler's like, we're almost done. Just answer the questions and you can leave. He's doing good cop, bad cop, but in one person. He's like uh, being a real Cynthia Nixon right now. A lot of multiple personalities coming out of Stabler. Mm-hmm. And Benson is now visiting the rich mom in Jersey who's reading a book. And Benson is playing a game. Benson goes, why is your blouse at Jason's house? Do you live with him? And she goes, listen, my son's not a murderer. And she goes, why do you leave your clothing at his place? And she goes, I told you, Jason doesn't like coming here. I visit him in the city. We do dinner. Sometimes we go to the theater. And sometimes it's too late to drive home. So I spend the night there and it's none of your fucking business. And Benson goes, okay, but there's only a Murphy bed and I didn't see a cot. Where do you sleep? Listen, I get that it's like expensive to live in New York and he's on a truck. A Murphy bed makes no sense. Why would it just be a Murphy bed? If you have a rich mommy in a trust, you have a bed. You have a real bed. Yeah, the Murphy bed is weird. I don't, there's, there's no way he lives in a studio. And even if I just, I don't buy the Murphy bed situation. Or maybe he's one of those rich kids that like, you know, wants to pretend they're not. Okay. Yeah. I know a lot of those. Someone tweeted once, I think it was Dwayne Perkins, where it's like, I love seeing people's houses during Thanksgiving break. Like all these people who pretend they're poor. And then like... <laughs> I'm sorry, is that an island in your kitchen? <laughs> um, Benson's, yeah. Okay, why not get a hotel? Why not drive home? And I just thought to myself, like, that is a level of rich I would really love to be. I would love to just, um, I actually don't want to drive home. I'll get the hotel right here for the night. Like, yeah, I would love that kind of a disposable, right. expendable income. But a woman like this could get a driver. I mean, there's like so many ways she can get home. Like, it's fucking oh, nuts. I agree with you. But I'm just thinking about like nights where I'm out in New York or out, like, yeah, where should we go? Three. You know what? I'm just going to go grab a room at the Maritime Hotel. I want to just come back up and we'll hang out a little longer. (laughs) Yeah. Or like, ugh, I'm not taking an Uber. I'm getting a room. Like I just would love to be able to just stay in hotel rooms and not care about any price ever. Like that is just awesome. So then Benson, great line. She goes, what the hell did you do to your son? And mommy dearest says, I don't like your question and I don't like your tone. Please leave. So back at the precinct, Huang is like jolly psych boy. He's so pumped. He's like holding the hat pin, trying to crack the case with Craig in um, six pins with corresponding complaints. Um, and I, I think I didn't mention this, but every pin had a location um, labeled to it. And each of those locations correspond to a complaint of someone being like someone pricked me out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah with a hat pin. And he talks about peakerism and he was just like peakeristic i can't believe i didn't see it um 
So, you know, peakerism, I guess, gets excited stabbing women's flesh. And the happens were like the attacks were in the butt in the back. So not one can even ID an attacker. So it like it works with the from the back shy moment type thing. So Stabler is now questioning Jason again. But now about the happens, Benson arrives and Stabler acts like he hates her. And when she leaves, Stabler asks, Jason, how long has your mother been sleeping with you? Rude. Um, and then so Jason's like, what are you talking about? This is crazy. And Stabler goes, she had no right to touch you and abuse you. And Jason goes, you're crazy. And now he starts banging on the mirror. And then he like, he like tries to flip it back on Stabler. Like you're, you guys are gross. Is this what happens to the sex police? Just sex on the brain all the time. My mom never, never touched me like that. And I really love this next shot so, so much. I think, um, we should take a screenshot of this scene. I think it's so good. Just to remember. Um, but so Stabler, like, it's, it's just like the direction of this is amazing. We have to look up the director. So like Stabler's in the background and then it's Jason right up onto the two-way mirror banging and yelling. And then we see um, like, like, I don't know, like we're at an aquarium, Craig and Benson and a super leaned in focus. Huang are like watching what's going on and it looks awesome. And um, Huang looks like what I look like when I'm at art museums. Like, ooh, uh, like what's like trying to be smarter than you are. I guess Huang is smart. He has a PhD and works at the FBI. Okay, so <laughs> Jason starts banging his head on the mirror. Never, never good. Um, and he goes, shut the hell up. So we know he's he's cracking a little. And Jason goes that it's his fault that his mom would rape him. And then he slides down and starts putting his fingers in his mouth and licking them. And truly, like, how did he not win an Emmy for this? This is Emmy territory yeah, acting. it's very, very eerie and creepy yeah so he starts doing an act out impression psycho moment his face looks like the new version of it like that new actor like just creepy eyes and his tongue's out and he's saying like i'm a dirty boy i can't keep my hands to myself and then he keeps going back and forth doing what i assume as impressions of his mom so it's like lying boy don't look oh look don't touch no touch me oh yeah that feels good no come here oh baby no that doesn't feel good you're a good boy shh and then he shushes like uh, Blair St. Clair. Um, the shimmy shush. Yeah, he does a <laughs> shimmy shush. <laughs> um, and then the mom runs in after Jason's now like been handcuffed and like being walked around and like, what have you done? Do you know what this will do to me? So this is a narcissist. Um, do not worry that her son might be a killer who's going to jail forever and like a rapist and a weirdo. It's like, look what you've done to me. Uh, and she calls him a filthy lying bastard. So we get to uh, the judge. Love this judge, Margaret Berry, played by Doris Bilak. She died in 2011. Oh, so we haven't had her in a while, but she is one of my favorites. And she was also in Sex in the City, one of my favorite shows. Um, she was one of the Jews at the synagogue when Charlotte goes to the mixer. And it's the same episode where Peter Herman is in it. Um, and oh. that's like the son that they're all setting up with. So a, a real SVU sex in the city crossover. And the episode is called a hop, skip in a week. So I don't know if you remember that it's with they go to Brooklyn, the absolute hunk, but this judge is in that. And she's also in my favorite movie prime, which started my love of Rothko's. Okay. Um, Lisa, I have a fun fact for you. Cause you yes. said we have to look up this director. Yeah. This episode was directed by Steve Schill. And he the not only directed one. this, but he directed the two episodes we just covered, Rooftop and Rapist Anonymous. And he's only done 14 episodes of SVU Total. And he also directed a lot of Dexter. 
Yeah, we were actually just looking him up this weekend. Because, yeah. And we were like, we need to get him because he's done The Wire. He's done like but the three episodes in a row that we just covered is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, we got to get show. Those are over multiple seasons. Like we're talking 2002 then- to 2013. Yeah. 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 I knew it was a great director. That shot is like so fucking good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now so we're in the core. This is like the it's an it's kind of like. SVU by the numbers, color by numbers. Cabot wants her man. Defense attorney says, let him go. Cabot says he's rich. The other guy says objection. Yada, yada. Bail said it a million. Um, then they go have more legal foreplay in the hallway, more arguing about stuff. And basically, uh, the defense attorney is trying to throw away a bunch of evidence. Another classic judge moment. This is um, a judge that's been in 18 episodes of SVU. Um, our mustached man, uh, Harvey Atkin is the actor's name and it's judge Alan Rindwar. I don't know. So basically the confession is out since he did ask for a lawyer, but didn't get one because Stabler wanted to play games and that, but the hat pins are in because it doesn't matter if you were looking for something and found something else. I think it's crazy. The defense attorney tried to break it. It's like you were looking for a knife and it's like, yeah, and they found bloody hat pins. It stays. Yeah. Um, nice try though. That's why you get paid the big bucks. Um, Cabot said, I fucking warned you Stabler who, and then Stabler's like, whose side are you on your side? But you have to follow the rule. I just hate when they fight like this. I feel like a kid watching their (laughs) parents about to get divorced or something. It's like, he did ask for a lawyer. You knew you were doing the wrong thing. Wong, um, says like, Hey, I have a theory. There's a pattern after the crimes. I think he goes to his mom's house in Jersey. The knife is there. We need to find the knife. The knife equals his penis. He is not disposing of it. So then Stabler calls everyone bottom feeding suits. And it's like, are the DAs making that much money? They work for the government. Like, I don't think they're that rich. So then they're begging to get a warrant to go to the Jersey house to look for this knife with the ADA and the ADA and one of the judges, they're frat bros. So um, they pull a favor. And they go, they get to search the house in Jersey. Um, and it's an, uh, the, uh, you know, we already saw the mansion and I love this. Is there an official word for like when the two staircases become one where it's like they're down the side, but then they oh, meet I'm in sure the middle there and go is. down? If you're like an interior designer or something, or like a real estate agent, let us know what that's called. I don't yeah. know. I'm sure there Hannah is. Hannah knows. What is I it? I think it's called a combination stair. That's not fun or fancy sounding <laughs> at all. It, a combination stair is an architectural element found in traditional homes in North America where two sets of stairs merge into one at a landing. Yeah, it's like Titanic style. Like, you know, this if you have a house like this, this is where everyone took prom photos. You know what I mean? Yes. It's pretty amazing. And so they're entering. There's guns. They're trying to find it. What's going on? They enter the bedroom. One of the best scenes in SVU history. Oh, my God. The mom is dead. Knife on the nightstand. Jason is shirtless. Everyone is naked. There's blood everywhere. He killed his fucking mom after probably fucking her. Okay. Um, And he quotes, I told her I'm not a little boy anymore. And then that's how it ends. Like a wild, bloody, naked incest ending of SVO. Yeah. And he's like, he's like touching her hair and it's bloody or it's like, he, it's so creepy. It's like one of the creepiest scenes. And then it's just like fucking Dick Wolf. It's so nuts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's an amazing episode and uh, yeah, I can't wait to hear more Kara. The true crime is so insane. I cannot wait. 
Oh my, and more insane than hat pin, penis, mommy fucking. This is amazing. Insane in different ways. There's just a lot of crazy elements in this next story, and I really can't wait to tell you about it. Hell yes. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. All right, so let's get into this. Uh, The story starts with a woman named Barbara Daly, who grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. When she was 11 years old, her father died tragically by suicide from car, like doing the carbon monoxide, like car in the garage with the hose thing. Oh, now when I think of carbon monoxide, I just think of the uh, midsummer. I haven't seen that. Well, whoever has, they're happy. I did have my husband tell me the entire plot of it because I said it was too scary. I would probably never see it. So he told me the whole plot. Well, then. But I just didn't know about carbon monoxide. She basically puts on a gas mask of carbon monoxide straight into her and then like kills her parents with the monoxide. But like gas mask, it's a fucked up scene. Trixie and Katya have talked about it in on and they make it really funny. Um, But it is (laughs) really fun. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm not I don't know if I can make it as funny, but her and her mother take the insurance money, which I didn't know that you got insurance money when you took your own life, but maybe you do, I guess. Yeah. Arthur Miller rules. <laughs> yeah. They move to New York city and they live at the Delmonico hotel, which I look up and it is currently Trump park Avenue. Boo. Barbara is a truly chaotic woman. She's like young and beautiful living in New York city. She just becomes a socialite. Like, I don't actually know if her family had any Money beyond like all we all we really can find is that she had this insurance. Her mom had this insurance money. So I don't know if she comes for money, but just being gorgeous and being kind of like eccentric. She just becomes this like New York socialite. She's dating tons of rich dudes. She models briefly for Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. So she's very beautiful. Like her mother, she also has issues with mental health and she saw a psychiatrist. And then at one point she screen tested with this 1940s movie star named Dana Andrews, but acting was like obviously not her, not her skill, but she did become friends with another aspiring actress named Cornelia Dickie Bakeland, Bakeland. I don't know how you say their last name, Bakeland, I think. There's so many vowels that look crazy in that name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
And then this is how she meets Dickie's younger brother. First of all, I don't know why Cornelia's nickname is Dickie. <laughs> why, like, well, I don't know where that came from, but this woman named Dickie has a younger brother named Brooks. So Brooks Bakeland is who Barbara meets and they fall in love or whatever. And, uh, and now Dickie Bakeland and uh, Brooks Bakeland are the grandchildren of Leo Bakeland, who is the inventor of Bakelite, which is moldable plastic. And Lisa, I don't know if you remember this, but earlier in the pandemic, when we were all jonesing for activities or anything to do, we did trivia with our friend Julia and our friend Megan. And Julia got a question right about Bakelite. I'd never heard of it, but she's like, it's Bakelite. And I was like, okay. And so apparently that reminds me of her now when I hear about it. So it's this moldable plastic. You can use it to make phones, radios, basically everything. So this man, Leo Bakeland, was rich as hell. And then all of his generations after him just had all this inherited wealth from him. So Brooks is like this lazy ass rich kid. Um, One article I read talked about them as a couple, Brooks and Barbara, and was like, he was a writer who never wrote. She was a painter who could not paint. Like they imagine themselves as these very like interesting artists. And like they actually did not produce anything. And I feel like I know a lot of rich people that are like this. Barbara tells Brooks that she is pregnant, which she is not, and they get married. (laughs) So that's the kind of life she's living is false pregnancies to lure men into marriage. So they get a quickie marriage in California. Then they live on the uh, Upper East Side in a fancy apartment. They have epic dinner parties with guests like Greta Garbo, Tennessee Williams. They're like in society in New York. Okay. Barbara earns a reputation for being unstable and prone to rude outbursts. And she suffers from bouts of severe depression. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of getting the Kristen Johnson character from uh, New York is dead and falling out the window. I'm sort of getting like that sex in the city vibe from this woman. Like she's just like acting out at parties and seems like the kind of woman that's like, you know, we'll start a fight with her husband in the middle of a restaurant or something and throw a glass of water. She's definitely would be on the housewives. In the 1950s or 60s, this bitch is a real housewife of New York, for sure. Um, She drank heavily, and both her and Brooks had constant affairs. They were both, I mean, like, apparently she would get very set off by his affairs, but she was also having affairs. So obviously, what do you do when you're living this chaotic lifestyle? You bring a child into the world. She and Brooks had a son named Anthony in 1946. So... They live in New York, but then when Anthony is eight, the family really starts like living like full cartoon characters. Like they keep their New York City place, but they bounce around Europe, like renting villas and houses in London, Paris, Italy, Zermatt, Cap Dantibes, like these places that are hard to pronounce. They're just bouncing all around and like living this lifestyle of luxury. And Barbara and Brooks just kind of like live the life. They entertain, they have affairs, whatever. Money is poison, really. Being rich is poison. Um, Okay, so at one point, Brooks tried to leave Barbara for a younger woman, but she, Barbara attempted suicide and he broke the relationship off with the other woman. And she does this multiple times. She constantly, like, sort of plays the I will attempt suicide card, and she does do that many times. So um, something I read said that Barbara would, like, smother Tony with attention and then ship him off to boarding schools, like, all over Europe. So I think there was, like, weird... They both thought that Tony was going to be this really, really outstanding person and like be very talented. And he kind of wasn't. And I th- I don't know if that affected their relationships with him. But in 1967, when Tony was 20, the family was based in Switzerland 
And uh, Anthony was at a Spanish resort of Kadak or Sadak. I don't know how you say this. It begins with a C, but I think it's Kadak. He meets Jake Cooper, an Australian man, and uh, who introduces Anthony to hallucinogenic drugs and the two start an affair. So Anthony is gay and Barbara is not okay with that. She drives to Spain to bring Anthony back to Switzerland, but at the border, he doesn't have his passport. She obviously makes a huge scene because she's that girl. And her and her son are both arrested and put in jail. So like everything is so bonkers with these people. The following year, apparently she has a little bit more accepted his relationship with Jake, but is still pushing him to like explore relationships with women. And he had brought home a French girl named Sylvie for the weekend. Um, And so she's kind of pushing that relationship like, oh, like, let's get with Sylvie. Plot twist. Sylvie starts having an affair with her husband, Brooks. Okay. This time, when Barbara finds out about it, she also attempts suicide again. But this time, Brooks is like, I'm done with this and files for divorce. And he marries Sylvie and they have a child. And then they eventually get divorced, too. This is just a fun little tidbit. In 1969, Barbara meets pop art curator and director Samuel Adams Green. And she has an affair with him. And he's like friends with Andy Warhol. He's like huge in like the pop art scene. And he breaks it off after six weeks. But Barbara's fully obsessed with him. And allegedly, she walked across Central Park in the snow barefoot, wearing only a lynx fur coat and to demand to be let into his apartment. I just think that's iconic rich lady crazy it is but it's like you could put on shoes i know i know but now let's get back to tony so as a young man anthony displayed signs of schizophrenia with paranoid tendencies and he was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia but at first his father refused to allow him to be treated by psychiatrists because the father thought that psychiatry was professionally amoral so the father just like doesn't agree with psychiatry he's a he's a real uh, stabler So now flash forward to the summer from his youth to the summer of 1968, right after his parents divorce, Barbara and Tony become extremely clingy and codependent, people say. And Barbara, in an attempt to, quote unquote, fix her son's homosexuality, starts hiring sex workers to sleep with him. When that doesn't work, it is believed that Barbara raped Tony. So at this point, yeah, he's 20 years old and his mother is having sex with him to try to fix his homosexuality. In her words, there is no fixing homosexuality because it is not a problem. In July of 1972, okay, so this is four years later, he tried to throw his mother into traffic in London outside of her penthouse, but literally didn't succeed because he wasn't strong enough. Um, And then he was arrested for attempted murder for that, but his mom didn't press charges, okay? And then... He was admitted to a private psychiatric hospital, but released soon after he started seeing a psychiatrist while living at home with his mother. And the psychiatrist warned Barbara, quote, your son is going to kill you. I think you're at grave risk. And she responded, I don't. So she thought he's not capable of murder. She waved him off two weeks after the psychiatrist had that conversation with her. On November 17th of 1972, Anthony, age 25, murdered his 51-year-old mother by stabbing her with a kitchen knife, killing her almost instantly. Um, So similar to the episode, I don't think he had a full peakeristic problem, but, you know, when the police arrived, this is bizarre. Anthony was on the phone ordering Chinese food like nothing ever happened, like completely unfazed. I mean, murder is exhausting. I understand wanting some fried rice after. You want some General Tso's chicken right after you kill your mom, for sure. Um, Anthony was institutionalized at England's high-security psychiatric hospital called Broadmoor until 1980, 
when his influential friends and family like fought for his release. So he did eight years in a psych hospital and then was released. Um, this story does not stop. After he gets released from Broadmoor, he immediately he's he's 33 years old now, Anthony. He immediately flies to New York City to stay. Wait, with his wait, eight, wait, wait, wait. So he only served eight years, eight years because he got a psychiatric. He probably got sent, you know, not, I, I, I don't know, because it happened in England. So I think their law system is a little different. But he, he obviously got some kind of reason of insanity defense was put in a hospital and then. Like the hospital released him because his friend, influential friends and family were like um, lobbying for him. So, yeah, it is kind of nuts that he would just be let out because here's what happens next. He flies directly to New York City to stay with his 87 year old maternal grandmother. So his mother's mother named Nini Daly or it's N.I.N.I. Nini Nini. I don't know. Yeah, but isn't she mad that this guy killed her daughter? I mean, she's probably like he's sick, uh, you know, I don't know. So he apparently builds a sort of creepy shrine to his dead mother and mumbled satanic masses over her ashes. That's where I, I, what I read in one place. So who knows? And then six days after his release, he attacked his grandmother with a kitchen knife, stabbing her eight times and breaking several of her bones because apparently she was nagging him, quote unquote. A surprise twist. She did survive. He was arrested by the NYPD and charged with attempted murder and sent to Rikers. Um, He was in Rikers for eight months of assessment by their psychiatric people. He was expecting to be released on bail on March 20th of 1981. So he goes to court uh, expecting to be let out on bail. And the judge um, sort of like postponed the case a little bit because his medical records had not been transferred from the UK yet. It's 1981. There's no email. Maybe there's faxing, but they don't have the medical records yet. So Anthony returns to his cell at 3.30 on that same day, and 30 minutes later, he's found dead by suffocating from a plastic bag. So he literally was just, like, enraged that his trial was delayed and killed himself by a plastic bag, which is, that's sheer determination, I feel like. Um, And that is the end of that story. A book was published called Savage Grace, the true story of fatal relations in a rich and famous American family. And then in 2007, there was a movie called Savage Grace with Julianne Moore playing Barbara and Eddie Redmayne playing Anthony. And I I would watch it. Never heard of it. I would love to watch it. This is a wild case. You uh, yes. you prefaced it, but it really is wild. And in the in the movie. Hugh Dancy, who is married to Claire Danes, if I'm not mistaken, plays the art guy, the pop art guy that she had the affair with. And in the movie, they have a threesome, the mother, the son and him. And he released a statement when the movie came out being like, that absolutely didn't happen. And he also said that he didn't think that Barbara had sex with her son or excuse me, raped her son because uh, he thought that she just liked to shock people. But everyone else seems to think this is what happened. Damn. Pretty wild. Rich people have a lot of problems. <laughs> um, I can't wait to see who our guest is because this was a great episode. Thanks, Kara, for taking us through this wild crime. You're welcome. That was really interesting. I'd never even heard about this at all. And so I'm really... Well, this Glad. was like written down. This was not on any list as being based on anything. And then a listener was like, I'm pretty sure you, you guys have to do peak. I'm pretty sure it's based on the Bakelands. Like, I mean, it really sounds like it has to be like even 
lightly based, you know? No, I feel very much like uh, Bill Hader's character, Stefan, where I'm like, this this murder has everything. We <laughs> a have murdered grandmother. <laughs> money, Europe, you know? Uh, <laughs> pushing, pushing your mom into traffic in London. Andy Warhol. It's like a very glamorous crime, but creep, 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 creepy for sure. All right. I am beyond thrilled for our next guest. He is an Emmy winning actor. You've seen him on ER, Melrose Place, 24, Pretty Little Liars, Supergirl. And he's also a enormous television director. He's directed tons of shows. uh, Supergirl. What's the one my husband likes? The Flash, Bones, Life in Pieces. But you guys know him as Jason Mayberry on this week's episode. Please welcome Chad Lowe. We're beyond. <laughs> this is one of the most requested episodes we've gotten from the listeners. Um, one of the favorites. We can't believe we're talking to you. Um, <laughs> and then I don't want to bury the lead. We got to just talk about the blood scene. I'm uh, right <laughs> off the top or no. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, we got to just dive in with how this is like one of the craziest episode endings of all time. Just like you in bed with your mom covered in blood. Like hey, There's a whole story behind that. <laughs> oh, but, um, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but first off, uh, you guys are hilarious. And I love that you're doing this. This is like, this is such a great <laughs> podcast. It's so thank fun. You. I've been, thank uh, you. I've been I've been listening and um, oh it must. It, I mean, you know, there's how many t- 18 years of uh, episodes to, to I mean, 22 seasons. They're on 22? the 22nd season. Right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, um, isn't this the record? Did Is this the record for drama series for longest running? I think for longest running, like, yeah, live action. Because I know The Simpsons and stuff has been on longer. But like, yeah, for it's pretty crazy. The Simpsons has been on for 78 years. I <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Simpsons girl. Look, I have oh. my Simpsons tarot deck right here. <laughs> They're the best. This, uh, you know, I did an episode of Bones. I digress. I know this isn't the Bones podcast, but <laughs> you guys, you guys will edit stuff out, right? That you don't like. Sure. Isn't, but yeah, but if this Bones scoop is good, we'll leave it yeah. in. No, it was, um, uh, I did an episode where we had, it was when they were celebrating, I think the 30th season or 25th season of of the Simpsons and they had all of the Fox programming had some Simpsons reference in it. So in bones, we had like a little Easter egg, they call it where if you look closely, you could see Homer Simpson's uh, X-ray of his skull and it was empty. Obviously there was no brain. (laughs) And then I had, um, I had an episode where uh, Dan who plays Homer, the voice of Homer, Dan's last name is Castellana or Castellata, something like that. He played a guest star. He played a cop on an episode of bones and it was amazing because you would never know he was the voice of homer simpson at all and he was very quiet and we were all like you know who's gonna ask him to do homer's voice (laughs) who's gonna do it and we were told you know he doesn't really it's like i'm sure he gets asked that every single day so finally at the end of the of the shoot i think our first assistant director finally went up to him and just slyly said something like donuts what don't they do (laughs) <laughs> that was my worst. That was not Homer. That was a really bad Homer. But anyway, Dan kind of smiled and laughed. And I forget what he said, but it was in the perfect Homer Simpson voice. And it was like <laughs> such a gift to hear that. It was so cool. Coming so, yes, out of I'm a human being. Wow. That must it have was been unbelievable. Nuts. It was like it was see, it was it was Homer in the flesh. It was pretty incredible. And I thought, how what a great superpower to like go to Starbucks and order a drink in the voice of Homer Simpson. That must be fun. Like a great 
party trick to have. <laughs> but peak, if I'm not mistaken, is the is the title of the of the episode that we're yes. uh, discussing currently. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the story? Well, I had to. I did not know what peakerism was until I was cast in this role, and I wanted to do some research. And uh, I, the first question I had was, okay, so what is peakerism? And the way it was explained to me was like a sexual obsession with needles and like puncturing, stabbing. And I, I, I was like, okay, that's enough. I don't need to know any more than that. This is, this is more bizarre and twisted than, I, than, than it even is on the page. Um, but the end scene was interesting uh, because we actually reshot that ending. Really? Yes. That wow. Is, we, so as the story goes, um, I can't divulge all of it because there's a really great story behind the story, which I'm afraid <laughs> I would get in big trouble if I were to tell. I know I'm sorry to tease like that, but what 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 ended up happening was the end of the episode was scripted that, and I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the characters, my character's name was Jason Mayberry, I believe. Mm-hmm. The end of the, the episode, you know, this is the spoiler alert if you haven't seen the episode. No, they, they mostly have listened if they're listening to this far into our yeah. podcast. <laughs> yes, if they're listening here, they've seen the episode. So I, uh, uh, Jason ends up, and I, and, I, and I don't even want to say I because it's so bizarre and so yeah. dark and so twisted. Jason me, the actor playing Jason, um, ends up having post-coital with his dead mother in a bed covered in her blood. Uh, and it was scripted that I, the character was, was, you know, naked basically, but you know, it's network television. So that naked means, you know, you're going to have your shirt off. Um, and, but there was a long discussion on the day about whether or not we would be able to get that by standards and practices for you know the the judge the judge and jury of what is appropriate and acceptable right for the, for the audience i don't know who they are but um we were concerned that if we actually filmed it with me being you know semi-clad with my shirt off whether or not it would actually be able to air so the choice was made to put me in a white t-shirt on the day uh which was not as scripted and so they put me in a white t-shirt and uh, there I was laying in bed with Margot Kidder, <laughs> who played icon. I mean, I mean, an icon. Um, <laughs> and they are, you know, putting all the fake blood all over me. And I'm trying to psych myself up for this really dark moment. And we shot it. And <laughs> I remember um, Mariska Hargitay kind of and, and, and Chris Maloney both kind of looking at me like, wow, that was that was really dark and really bizarre. But we love it. And so I was feeling really, really good about it. And then finished the episode. And, I, you know, what's interesting is I was also at the same time I got to do, I was in a, a movie called Unfaithful with, yeah. with Richard Gere and Diane uh, Lane. And so I started shooting and I was a small role in that movie, but I started shooting that movie. I did one scene in that movie. And then like a month later, I did this episode of uh, Law and Order SVU, finished it, went back and did a little bit more work on uh on unfaithful about three months later, I think I got a call and I was still working on unfaithful, which shows you the difference between how network television and a film is done. Like network television, you get like eight to 10 days to film an episode. And this feature film took like four months. It was so crazy. Um, and they, uh, they called me and said, listen, you need, are you available? Are you in New York? Cause, and I was living in New York city at the time. 
I said, are you available? Um, they they want to reshoot something. I wasn't even sure what on the SVU episode that you did. And I thought, well, I, like, I love acting and I, I, I'm always, you know, excited anytime I have the opportunity to, to get to act. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm available and I'm excited. I didn't know yet what it was we were going to be reshooting. Um, and so, you know, there we are like a week later in this new New Jersey mansion where we had shot the ending and I'm told, you know, we have to reshoot the ending. I'm thinking, why are we reshooting ending? It was, everybody seems so happy with how twisted and dark it was. And I wasn't really sure I wanted to go back to that place emotionally as an actor. Yeah. It's really, it's really uncomfortable. If you, if you really go there, it's really uncomfortable. And, um, I was told that there was a very heated conversation. This is all I will say. There was apparently a very heated conversation that happened behind the scenes about the validity of the character having had sex and killing his mother wearing a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> right? bet. So, I bet Dick Wolf himself was like, it would never happen. You know, <laughs> we no, need to reshoot it. No names. I'm not sure of uh, who, who, who or how or when this conversation went down. Wow. So what we see is like months later, you just hopping back into this wild character. Wow. Months, months later. And I'm thinking, wow, I don't. And it's always hard when you feel good about. So, you know, the, one of the hard things when you're an actor is when you go into audition for something and you feel really good, like you nailed it. And then lo and behold, you know, there's rare opportunities. You actually get the job. And then that scene you audition for comes up and you have to actually perform that scene. You never feel like you did it as well as you did in the audition ever. Right. So I felt that way about this. I felt like this ending wasn't as good. I wasn't as good a, 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 an actor in this ending. And I felt like it just didn't have the same kind of uh, darkness. And I don't, I, I just didn't feel like I was in it as much as I had been. But I have to say, when I saw it, I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't feel that way after I saw it. Yeah, I was going to say, like, having watched it, it's dark as hell. And <laughs> I can't imagine what your original performance in the t-shirt was like, because <laughs> like, I always remember, like, Having seen this episode like multiple times over the years, I just like always remember that last scene with you being like, I'm a big boy now. I'm not a little <laughs> boy anymore, whatever. And it's like so scary. Well, one of the other uncomfortable scenes is when you're in the interrogation and you start putting your fingers in your mouth. Do you remember that? Was yeah. that a directorial decision or was that a personal decision? <laughs> <laughs> you have this like, I'm a bad boy monologue thing. Yeah. So I, I remember it very well. Um, Hey, you know, those those opportunities are so rare as an actor to get to play something that's so rich. And I mean, I love that stuff. I, I love getting to play characters like this. In fact, this is this character is one of my favorite characters I've ever had the chance to play. Um, wow. He was so complicated and so bizarre. And yet and, you know, and I'm, I'm I mean, I'm not really a method actor because method has been. It's not as it, it's misunderstood, really, I think, method, but at least kind of sense memory and and trying to bring things up from your personal life that um, you can apply to the scene is some of the work that I do. So, um, you know, what I related to in that moment was was just wanting that feeling that we all have, I think, at some point in our lives where we we feel like we've really grown up. You know, and we feel like we can stand on our own two feet. And this is now this is twisted because 
it was <laughs> really strange circumstances. But I thought, you know, in my own personal life, I feel like I'm not a little boy anymore. I feel like I'm a man now. You know, I'm, I'm, I believe I was married at the time. I was married. I think I was 27. I was like 29, 30 years old. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a grown up now. And, and, and you have to, everybody has to break free from their childhood, right? Break free from their parents and have that moment where they really feel like they're autonomous. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to go to that place where I feel like in my life, I've been underestimated or people have seen me as a little boy or have, have underestimated me as an actor or have just thought that I was lightweight or, you know, this blonde hair, blue eyed guy from Malibu, which I am blonde hair. I have green eyes and I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually from Dayton, Ohio, but you know, that's, that doesn't make as good press, I think. So I thought <laughs> I'm going to just put all that anger and all that angst into this. And I'm going to just see what happens. And for days before this, I felt this kind of low grade nausea and like I was had that like a flu coming on. And I knew what it was because this is, happens often and it still does. If I have a really tough scene to do, I just I feel it's anxiety, it's nerves, it's all that stuff. And it's, it's the stuff you need, frankly, I think you just have to learn how to channel it. And so, um, I remember as we were on the set and we're getting ready to shoot this, the director is a wonderful British director named Steve Schill. I said, um, I said, listen, I don't know if I have more than one of these in me. And he's like, Oh, okay. All right. Well, what, what do you mean? And I said, <laughs> I said, I don't really know, but I'm going to commit to whatever comes up. And so I just want to let you know that I may only have one in me. And he's like, kind of thinking, well, this is either this actor is being extraordinarily difficult, or he's going to go to some very dark place. And I think it was kind of a combination of both, really. Um, and I remember sitting with the camera department. I didn't, you know, usually when you're setting up a scene, you have second team, which are the stand-ins that will sit and stand there while they focus the lights and make sure the lighting is right and make sure all the focus marks are proper. Um, and I just thought, you know, I don't want anybody else in here. I want to do this myself because I want to make sure it's right. So I kept going through the motions of what I would do technically. And then they said action. Uh, and, and I remember feeling like I was going to get sick. I remember feeling like I'm either, I may throw up oh here <laughs> and that uh -huh. would be really awkward and awful. And we'd have to cut and that would be really embarrassing. And I remember feeling like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. It's really uncomfortable. And then I think something happened just emotionally where I went, you know what? You said you'd do it once. Let's just go once. And then I think out of nowhere, my fingers ended up in my mouth. <laughs> 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 and I was embarrassed. And I was like, kind of like out of body experience watching myself doing this, going like, this is really humiliating and embarrassing. And I can't believe you're doing this. And then I'm also like in the scene going, yeah, this feels right. <laughs> this feels like. This, no, this, it was great. I right. thought. Well, and did you, you only do that one take? And so we got done and I'm crying and I'm ready to really like, I just, I'm really, really ready to move on from that place. And I looked at him at the, I looked right away to the focus puller and I said, was that in focus? <laughs> that was my biggest <laughs> worry. And he said, uh, yeah, yeah, no, that was in focus. And the director came in, kind of looked at me and went, okay. And I said, I said, it was in focus. I really don't think I want to do that or can do that again. And he said, uh, and I knew he was nervous. And now it's funny because now I direct primarily. That's what right. I do primarily. So like, 
if an actor were to say that to me, I, I would be very uncomfortable because you really want more than one take. Right. Just for safety. I mean, even if you right? nail it, yeah. even if you nail it, because you also want to be able to build a performance. And I didn't, I just knew I, I could do something again, but I wouldn't do that. again. Mm. And I felt at that point, like all this buildup and these, you know, days and days of this anxiety and this low grade nausea, what kind of immediately went away. Like I purged it all in that moment. And I thought, I, I just don't want to do this again. So I think the director looked around and looked at Mariska or not Mariska because Mariska wasn't in the scene. I don't believe it. It was Chris Maloney. And Chris was yeah. like, ah, Chris was like, ah, I, don't know, yeah, I think we got it. You know? <laughs> I was like, I think we got it too. And, um, so we, um, we, we did one take and that's it. That's I what love you that is awesome in the episode. to know. I think it's such an interesting episode because they find you close to the beginning. It's not like there's a bunch of red herrings and then you you come in at the end as the person that did it. They find you at the beginning and then there's this whole trying to draw your character out because you want to be a cop too. And like a lot of sort of Stabler's character kind of messing with you. But then also right. you're like, you're this like murderer, but you're also a victim. Like you've been <laughs> yeah. molested by your mother for God knows how long. So you really are like straddling this line of like innocent and creepy in your character. Like I, w I think when we watch it, we're like, I don't know if it's this guy. I mean, there is something creepy about him, but like until we find out that it's you, we don't know. Yeah, he is some he is somewhat sympathetic, I think, in the end, which is which is really interesting. I thought that was a really interesting turn. And, you know, they say like I've heard other actors say that, you know, you really can't judge your character that you're going to play like you have to kind of try to work to understand them, no matter how evil they are. I mean, even if you're playing like, you know, like Jeffrey Dahmer or some awful, you know, monster, you still would have to find some part in you inside of you to understand that person, who they are and why they behave the way that they did. And so I think the fact that, that this character was so wounded helped in a way, um, because there was, I mean, for me as the actor, I could kind of, kind of understand why he was so damaged and why he behaved in the way that he did, because like, as you said, it's really true. He, he was also a victim himself. Yeah. Not to go back to weird things that you had to do in this episode, but I was wondering what it's like to act in front of a mirror in that interrogation scene. And you were like screaming at the mirror. Is that weird to do looking at yourself and having to well, so do it? That's a good question. Um, and so now not only it was it out of body experience, it was like I was watching myself from out of my body, but then I was also watching myself in a mirror, in a mirror. So thank God actors are somewhat narcissistic and we, and we enjoy this, <laughs> this kind of, you know, checking the hair. I, yes. I've always <laughs> talked to other friends who are actors who like, you know, like if you're really sad in your day and you're like, you know, something happens and you're crying, you're like, run to the mirror. Cause you want to see what it looks like when you cry. You're like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I could really, you know, this is really sad. This is what I look like when I'm sad. It's, this is why actors are so freaking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, why, that's why we're all a little touched because um, we're working in this headspace. But yeah, I remember that was, um, I think that was helpful looking in the mirror in a way, uh, because I think as, as I as I recall, and, and I know like looking yourself in the mirror, like truly looking yourself in your, in the mirror can be, can bring a lot of stuff up it, as an exercise. I know that it can be uncomfortable. It, it can bring up insecurities. It can bring up self um, worth issues and shame issues. And it could also in a weird way, if you believe this, and I happen to believe it, if you look deep enough, you can kind of see past the person and into the soul. 
and into and into the the essence of who of your being. And now I'm I'm overanalyzing all this and making it all way too airy fairy. But it was <laughs> in that moment I think kind of everything disappeared for me, and I kind of was able to check in with that kind of inner child, if you will. And really, wow. that scene that scene is about killing the inner child, right? If you right. think about it and about announcing that to this detective in that moment. And also it's a confession, right? I, as I remember, this scene was, was a confession, whether yeah. it was, whether it was um, implicit or not. I, I, my memory of it was at least the way I played it was that was his moment of showing some, another human being, his vulnerability. And, and that's the other thing too, as an actor, like it's really hard to act in a scene alone, but I get very nervous when I act. I get very, very nervous when I audition. It's, it's a problem. <laughs> I don't enjoy it. <laughs> um, and the only thing that ever seems to calm my nerves is to connect with another human being and to know that I'm not alone in that moment. And so I remember connecting with myself in a way, but then also being able to turn and look at Chris and feeling knowing what a great actor Chris Maloney is and how, how strong he was in that, in that show. And, and what a great actor he's always been. In fact, Chris and I were in acting class together. That's another little secret. Really? Felt, yeah. I felt really safe with Chris in that moment. Like I could kind of do something really risky. Um, and, and it kind of, you know, like it's, it's, I guess it is getting out of yourself in a way, like connecting with another person, like public speaking is something that, I think most people struggle with most people feel really, really uneasy in public speaking. And it's, and, and, and I have had the opportunity to, to do some speeches and speak publicly a few times. And I've always found the best way for me to settle my nerves and allow my, my mind to work and stay on script or, or get the message out that I'm trying to deliver is to look at one person in the room, you know, is really connect with one person. Um, and there's something about that that's that can be very, very comforting. Wow. I'm so glad Stabler was able to provide that for you. That's Stabler. A, yes. That's really. And I love that you knew each other. Yeah. Like this is like pre like when you guys were starting out, you were in acting class together. I love that. Yeah, we were. In fact, I knew I knew Mariska and I were friends. We had been we met when we were both on ER together. Oh, wow. We were also going to ask if you knew Neil Bear from ER. You know, I knew Neil from ER. I did. Yeah. Is, I, I, Neil Bear. I have to let me just say how much I love Neil Bear. He is one of the kindest First of all, he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. I mean, not only is he this genius writer, but he's also, you know, a doctor who was at Harvard Medical School. Like, yeah. He's incredibly super smart, down to earth, kind, um, supportive. And so I, I knew Neil from ER. And I think that might be how this role came to be for me on, on SVU was I think, as I remember, I, th you know what, actually, I'm just remembering this now. I was at a Golden Globes thing for the golden globes. And, um, he pulled me aside and said, I think I have a role for you. I remember this now. Oh wow! And, and I remember saying to him, I said, anytime, anywhere for you, Neil, you know, I do it. Cause I just adore Neil. I still yeah. to this day uh, adore him. And he said, all right, I may have something really interesting for you. And that's <laughs> something I'm just now remembering this. That is how I got that role. So it helps to know, it helps to know people. Sure. Yeah.
No, he was on our, he came on yes. our podcast. We interviewed him uh, and he was like, so we were like, we could just talk to you for five hours. Like he's, ama- he's amazing, right? He's yeah. just, he's the best. He And he remembers the, everything. He's like I said, he's literally one of the smartest people I've ever met. Yeah. And they got you in there. You were, you were guests. I mean, this is season two. Like this is the show is just starting. Like was this you, season two? Yeah. Yeah. What? So. Yeah, because you 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 directed Solus in season four, but this was season two. So oh you're you kind of got on the SVU train at the beginning. Had you been like watching the show at all before when he called you in to do it, or like I mean, because it was a new show. I remember I was very aware of the show, and I had watched a few episodes of the show. But knowing Marishka, who I'd met and uh, on ER, and knowing Chris from acting class previously i was i did watch the show i think i watched the pilot episode and a few episodes and i thought this show is really good and i was and i was not surprised at all that it would be very successful i mean two those two actors are also such powerhouses um yeah and they always were i mean marishka on on er was genius I mean, she was so good on er and chris was great in acting class my only argument with chris in acting classes, he used to go up, he'd do his scenes, and then he'd leave. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so that's actually very stabler, but... Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. That was like, come on, Chris. Come on. You know, like... This is a community. This is our community. But no, he was always he was always great and very supportive. And and um, so, yeah, that's that's how it came to be. I mean, I remember I read, I auditioned for my role on, I don't want everybody, uh, I don't want the audience to think that like in Hollywood, friends just give you jobs. Um, <laughs> sometimes they, sometimes they do, but more often than not, you have to go out and earn them. And I had read, I went in on the whole cattle call for the, I played a role on ER. I got to do like four or five episodes of ER and I auditioned for that. And that was kind of a grueling experience to get that role and was lucky enough to get that role, which, you know, they always say like, you never know where something's going to lead. And I think it right. led to, to this SVU character. That's awesome. I feel like I got so excited because we had talked to Neil Bear, if you knew him, but you were saying how you met Marishka on the set. And so you guys stayed friends post ER until SVU. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's, it's, and, and then the opportunity to direct came up, which. Yeah. I was just about to ask you about that because it seems like just looking at your IMDb, this was kind of your first major television thing was directing Solace. Yeah, it was. I mean, I had done, I had written and directed a f- two uh, short films um, and one that was very much uh, felt in the vein of an SVU kind of a, a, a procedural drama about mm. a, a, a crime that had been committed. And it was dark and had a, it was good. I, I thought it was, it was really well done. Um, and I thought I was really on my way until I got the opportunity to direct um, Sol- Solace for on SVU. And I'm so grateful to Ted Kotcheff, who was the producing director and executive producer, and to Neil for giving me the opportunity. I was not really prepared or ready yet. In, in hindsight, you know, hindsight's 2020 right. off often. <laughs> um, I knew how to make cool shots and I knew how to talk with actors uh, because as being an actor, I'm comfortable in that, in that world, which is, you know, which is, I don't want to discredit that because those are two important skills to have, uh, for directors, but you know, those are two skills in a wide range of skills you need to have. And I was, you know, woefully unprepared for what it would take to 
direct a huge network television show. And so the fact that I wasn't fired <laughs> from directing <laughs> Solace is something that I, I am very grateful to all, all parties involved. But um, it was it, I'm just over my head. As most first-time directors are on network television, it is a very, very challenging job. You have to start somewhere, right? I mean, yep. And I'm so, and again, this Ted Kotcheff and Neil Bear gave me my start as a director. I think you're somewhere directing right now, or you just were. You were like in Canada or something directing, or I directed The Flash. Um, up oh, in my Canada. husband is a fan. Ooh, well, yeah, big fan. But I was the. I just finished doing uh, Lone Star, the nine one one Lone Star. Oh, cool! With with this actor named Rob Lowe, which was interesting <laughs> to work. Really interesting to work with. Wow! But, How is it I'm, to work with your brother? And I'm currently directing um, Titans for. It's an HBO Max show called Titans. Oh, cool! Which is a really good show. Really good. Uh, working with Rob is fantastic. I mean, we're it's from the line from Spinal Tap. We're closer than brothers. Uh, we are. We are. <laughs> We are closer than brothers. We do really well together. Um, and his son, John Owen, was the writer of the episode. So it was it was uh, really a, a special experience. So with your directing, are you is that kind of where you're leaning now? Or are you still like going? Are you still working on getting acting parts? Or are you kind of like that's, you know, moving towards directing, trying to split time? What's the what's the deal there? Uh in a perfect world, I'd be able to, I'd be able to split time in a perfect world. I would be able to do both. I would, I would, but acting is, is, uh, is very fickle. Um, it's interesting. I, I miss acting. I haven't really done much since I was on Supergirl. I had a, a recurring role on Supergirl, which was a lot of fun. Um, but I don't, I, I work at directing. I don't work much at acting anymore. I don't. Um, so I'm not, I'm not in a place where I, I really want to scour the breakdowns and look for opportunities <laughs> and, you know, make all the phone calls and, and, you know, ride my agents about why am I not reading for this and reading for that? <laughs> um, so, but I just am really fulfilled by directing and I feel really fortunate, really lucky to be at a place where I get the opportunity to direct and, um, so it's hard. I, I, I miss acting. I'd like to be acting more, but not at the cost of not directing. So somewhere there's a balance. I just haven't been able to find it quite yet, but I'm not complaining. Getting to direct the shows I've been directing is, I mean, like a, really a dream come true. Are there any lessons that you learned directing Solus that you've carried on through other gigs since it was your first one? Yeah. I mean, so many lessons that I learned. I mean, the mo it's funny is the biggest challenge I faced in as a first time director on a network television show was just how much you have to manage time. And because there's only so much time you have to shoot in a day and also what I need to cover a scene. And by that, I mean, how is it all going to be put together in the editing room? So you, you film it in pieces, obviously. But when you put it together, it's a continuous piece of film uh, with cuts. And so one of the things that Ted Kotcheff is, is so good at is understanding how all of these pieces that you film cut together to make the whole. And he, after, I think after the second day that he didn't fire me, um, <laughs> he sat behind me and would go, where's your cut? Where's your cut? 
And I didn't understand at the time what he meant. I just wasn't experienced enough. And I, I was like, well, I'll, I'll figure, because I'm thinking this is a really cool scene and I've got it shot a cool way and the actors are really good. And he was telling me, asking me where my cut was. And I, and I said to him, I said, well, my cut, well, I'll figure it out when I'm in the editing room. And he said, no, you will not figure it out in the editing room. You will always know where your cut is. And he was right. And it, it put that seed in my mind for me to try and figure out. It's taken me years and years. I've been directing now about 17 years. So, and I feel like I just finally became really competent and good at it. If I may say so about <laughs> six, about six years ago to where wow. I really went, Oh, I understand what Ted meant. And now mind you, Ted had directed Rambo wow. uh, weekend, weekend at Bernie's oh my um, gosh. Uh, North Dallas 40. So he was like a big feature director and then over, I don't know, 300 hours of television. So this is a, a very seasoned veteran who's a very yeah. good director and giving me a gift. It was, it was a little bit like the great Santini, you know, giving a gift to his son. It was hard to hear and um, it was really challenging, but it, I think in the end, to go back to the question, what did I learn? I think I almost learned everything in directing Solace. And again, the lesson for me, as I'm always reminded in life is, you know, oftentimes it's at our lowest points, our darkest moments that we have the most to learn. And if we're able to sort of survive them, which I came away from Solace going, all right, I know I don't know a lot. I know I've got a lot to learn, but I came away from directing Solace completely committed to becoming a good director. And wow. I thought it was a little bit like that, which doesn't kill you may, will make you stronger. And it was hard because I had to kind of be honest with myself and go, I am uh, green. I am uh, inexperienced. I thought I knew what I was doing because I had a, I had a short film that went to the Toronto film festival and had gone to the Tribeca film festival. And I thought, well, you know, I've arrived. I'm a director now. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was very humbling. I must say to realize how much I didn't know. And now wow. that we know that you were friends with, uh, Maloney and Marishka, how was it directing your friends? Did they give you shit? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, it, they, they, you know, they, and, and again, I appreciated that they, they were tough on me, both of them, both of them were tough on me. The, the power dynamic definitely changes. And I, it's still, it's still to this day is that way. It's funny because I, I had, was on a show called pretty little liars for a while. And yeah. I was an actor on the show. I got to do both, but it was perfect. I got to act and I got to direct. And when I was an actor, I could go and hang out with the cast and talk about what we did over the weekend and what movies we liked, what TV shows we were binging. And then as soon as I started directing, if I went into the holding area where all the actors were around talking, they'd all get really quiet and look at me and go, yeah, and, and what, what, what do you want? And I was like, I, I'm, I'm just coming in to say good morning and hi. And how was your weekend? And they're like, and they'd say like, oh, it, it was fine. And there was always this kind of like, I all of a sudden became the teacher or the parent. And as soon as I, as soon as I leave the room, I could hear them burst into laughter and have the, this great time. But <laughs> so directing can be a very lonely position. Uh, somebody once said to me, nobody invites the director to dinner. And it's really, tr <laughs> it's really true. So the, the, the relationship on, on when I was directing the SVU with Mariska and with Chris shifted a little bit because I was now you know, expected to have, be in charge of 
you know, riding the ship and, and driving us toward, you know, making our days and getting everything we needed. And so uh, I was no longer just, uh, you know, one, one of their friends who was also an actor that they liked. So I, I was held in a different capacity and, and that was challenging. I did not expect that, but they were both very, very tough on me. Um, and again, made me a better actor, uh, director, I believe. And in the end, it was hard. I, di- I did not appreciate it at the time, but in, re- in hindsight, I realized what they were doing was treating me like they would any other director who showed up on set, who was inexperienced and not really ready to handle the load of directing a show like that. And so, um, it, it frustrated me and I was angry, <laughs> but ultimately I had to look inward and, and try to take away the lesson from it. And the lesson was, you know, I needed more experience. I really, really did. And so I've seen them since and friends with Marishka still. And I, I ran into Chris recently and I kind of made an amends to Chris. I kind of... <laughs> It was very interesting because I saw him at some some event, and he's very stoic. I don't I don't think you're going to get Chris on the show. No. Well, Diane Neal says she thinks he'd do it, but we're, we we might have to wait a couple years. Well, but. it's been really fun doing this show for so many reasons. But everyone that comes on is like Marishka is an angel from God. She is everything. She <laughs> is like the head of the ship. And then everyone with Maloney's like he's kind of serious and weird and stretching. <laughs> and so we uh, that's like the vibe we get. About but very talented. I mean, yes, everybody says yes. how talented and good he is. No, I, and and I would say what he uh, what he is is extraordinarily committed, Mm -hmm. like so deeply committed and cares so deeply and is, and, and, and is working at such a high level that I think he has a hard time if somebody isn't completely 100% on their game. And I have to respect that. I mean, it's any difficulty I ever had with Chris isn't about like some, you know, insignificant issue, like, uh, catering isn't warm or, you know, my trailer's too far (laughs) away, or it's always about the work. And it was always whatever difficulty and hard time I had with Chris, it was about the work and it was about the vision for the scene. So I will say, I think what Chris is, I think Chris is probably really shy. Actually. I think he's a bit of an introvert, which is strange because he's, he presents as this strapping, like muscular, strong, you know, masculine figure, but I think probably underneath it, he's actually probably very shy. Um, so you're not going to get a lot of like hanging out by the monitor laughing and joking. (laughs) I think he's really serious about his work and then goes to where he's most comfortable, which I think is probably, you know, not being the most social guy in the world. So that's my take on Chris is I think he's just really actually probably underneath it all very introverted. Now, Marishka, on the other hand, is a complete extrovert, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And just, I mean, like, she's just like, good time, Marishka. It's like laughs <laughs> and always having a good time and keeping it light. And so they're very different in that way. And I think that's probably what gave them such great chemistry. You know? Right. Because, you know, like opposites coming together is really interesting. That's kind of what you want for chemistry. And what were you going to say about the party with you and Maloney or like you guys made amends or something? Yeah, no, it was just, I just, I said, you know, I, this is, I mean, this is, you know, being with, with hindsight being 2020 and, 
16, 15 years of experience under my belt, I've been able to look at that experience of, of directing that show and realize how green I was and how uh, inexperienced I was. And I just basically said, you know, I, I said, I, I'm, I don't know if I said I was sorry, because I'm not sure I didn't try anything to be sorry about, but I kind of acknowledged the fact that I was green and inexperienced when we worked together. And, um, Chris was gracious in, 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 in Chris's best way, which was to kind of <laughs> acknowledge the fact, <laughs> you know, but again, I think he's really a very sensitive guy. He kind of acknowledged it and was like, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, some, you know, some of those, listen, sometimes actors and artists, I mean, not just actors and artists, but sometimes people are really, um, can come across as aloof or, or arrogant or, when really what's going on internally and inside is that they're really uncomfortable or awkward with mm -hmm. inter interacting. And I just think he's one of those guys, you know, that's, he's got a really big heart. He's a, he's a good guy underneath, but I think he's imposing like physically, he's a big guy and he's got that look about him. But I think that's kind of at odds with what's going on inside of him. So I, I, he just, he kind of nodded and said, yeah, yeah, that was an interesting as an interesting, interesting experience. <laughs> and I kind of said, yeah, 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 that was, <laughs> that was interesting. And I was inexperienced and not really ready for that big of a, of a role as, in directing your show, but I sure <laughs> loved work, but I sure loved the experience and thank you for that. And he's like, yeah, man, it's all good. And kind of, we laughed and off he went. <laughs> it's so. wild to hear this. Cause watching it, I mean, I wasn't looking out, but it's a great episode. It's one of the greatest episodes. Oh, wow. That, that's, no, really? To know like, that this it has so many good yeah. twists. It's like great. And you have it's, it's such a good cast. I mean, Ann Dowd, you got like. Oh, it's a crazy cast. And, and uh, Logan Marshall Green, I believe. But here's the thing about that is I believe as an actor and as a director, and we're only as good as the script and only as good as the story. And I will also say as a director, I've come to learn that when it's good, I get way too much credit. And when it's bad, <laughs> I get way too much blame. And, and, and that's just the nature of directing television. When it's really good, there's just way too much because so many things have to come together for an episode to really work. And, and first and foremost is a script and the story. And if it's not on the page, it's not magically going to appear. And so I was very fortunate to have a good episode and, and good writing. You can tell how much you love your work. Well, that's nice to hear. I do. I do love, I do love my work. And I'm, um, you know, the, as I, as I get older and mature, I realize how fortunate I am. I'm just just struck by how fortunate I am to have the opportunity to get to do what I do. I mean, I, it's not lost on me. I don't take any moment of it for granted. Um, it is such a privilege to get to be an actor and 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 now to be a director as well. So I'm I'm you know I'm just really kind of I just feel so fortunate. So it's nice to be able to talk about these things. Oh my gosh. I loved him. I loved He's his energy, his vibe, everything he said. And obviously he complimented us up the, up top. So number one guest. No, and he listened <laughs> to some episodes of our podcast. I love that. Like <laughs> zoomed to so number great. one. Yes. And gave the scoop. And I just love people that are thoughtful and sharing about their craft and about like 
the process of learning and like doing things before you think you're ready or when you think like with directing and then jumping in and then being grateful and understanding how awesome it is to have mentors and listen to people. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, I just I love the process of creation. I feel like we just keep talking to people who are just so like humble and grateful and positive and they're successful. And it's just like a really great it's just really great to see the cause and effect. Like, yeah, you know. I think if they weren't humble, they wouldn't be on the pod. Okay. That's the theory. <laughs> right? Or maybe. I don't we, know. No, Neil Bear, he knows he's the best. <laughs> he, <laughs> he's like, I'm not, I'm working at Harvard. Excuse me. Um, I, I would like to add the number one lesson, of course. Don't fuck your kid. Yeah. AKA rape your kids. Yes. <laughs> don't Today's rape your kids. If- <laughs> if today's postmortem is anything, tells us anything, it's do not have sex with your kids. I mean, do not molest or rape your kids. You can't have sex really with your kids. No, I said AKA rape. Yeah. Maybe that was too late. I was but... correcting myself. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we both fuck up. Yeah. Um, it's hard. Language is difficult when yes. you're so <laughs> trained. It's like you're so trained and everywhere else. It's like when you get into a social conversation about everything, even when someone's trying to be are saying the right thing. The language is hard. It's like, you really have to um, know, know the stuff to know what's appropriate or not. Cause people will be like, how dare he fuck an underage girl? And you're like, you're on the right side. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, I'm not going to nitpick with with you, but sometimes, uh, but yeah. And I guess don't talk to the cops. Zip it. Unless the lawyer comes zip it. Yeah. He fully confesses without a lawyer. Don't let the cops flatter you. Don't let the cops tell you that, like, you're the one that's going to help them solve the crime. Yeah, they are trained to lie, manipulate and get information out of people. There's a reason cops do well on Survivor. (laughs) I didn't even know that. Yeah, some of the best winners, unfortunately, are um, or fortunately are cops. Wow. Because, you know, they they're physically strong, but in terms of like they know what's up, they know what to say. One guy built spy shacks. They can like sniff out weakness, I bet. Yeah. And they just fully know how to lie. There was actually a season with two cops and one cop like it was like blue line, baby. And then the guy was like, I'm voting her out. (laughs) (laughs) She felt betrayed. Like she was like, we're cop brother, sister. What the fuck? Guess what? The bitch came back, won the whole season. (gasps) Hello. Learned her lesson was like, came back. And like, there was one moment where like, there was a clue under someone else and they didn't see it. And while she was swimming, she would be like with everyone was able to slither out on a platform, grab a secret thing, put it in her bra, swim to the main thing with no one noticing and like was able, and then learn how to lie, lie to people's faces. And then the other cop, he's won twice now. Fuck. Like, so now if you're a cop or a lawyer or if you're a favorite, you don't tell people you you're like, oh, I work in bail bar or like. You just lie. You're, you say you do other things. They say cops are quitting um, in droves all across the country. So maybe they're just all trying to get onto Survivor. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone from Burger King and the police departments will be on the next season. And me. And me. And Lisa. Um, oh, uh, what I realized was uh, Tandy, Veronica Tandy's husband, is in an episode of Sex in the City that I just watched and I lost my mind and to explain to the person I was with why I was excited was humiliating. But he was in an episode of Sex in the City where Miranda goes to the comedy club 
And right. He is her date. And so when he goes to the bathroom, his phone rings. The comedian is bad. And he's like, what the fuck? Answer, answer the phone. And the phone call is her date's wife. And then he comes back and like they do a thing. And it's a whole thing about like, why are men liars? She straight up asked him, how long have you been divorced? He went three years, just like that. He just said three years. That's yeah. like in quotes. Um, Wait, I literally remember every moment of that episode. I remember like exactly what it looks like and what happens. And I just didn't place that guy's face at all. No, it would be why. I mean, yeah, I'm very proficient and I didn't get it until just now when I saw it on accident. (laughs) And like we had just done this episode, you know, like, yeah, I don't know if I would have been able to connect all of this if it wasn't timed perfectly. But the universe at B wanted someone listening here today to know this. Sure. Right. Yeah. And this uh, this is a intro thing, but I remember and manifest. Look at us putting manifest, manifesting manifest. Yeah. If you don't know what she's talking about, apparently manifest may be getting another season. So people are manifesting another manifest. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, all right. Back to peak. Back to peak. Anyway, peak, a, a, a classically fucked up episode that I think about all the time. Like I've seen it so many times. And I mean, yeah. I don't know how much real world application there is to this episode. Well, we have the real crime. I also, you know, put on a shoe if you're going to stalk a lover. Yeah. If you're going to cross Central Park in a mink stole, nothing but a mink fur, put some shoes on. Yeah. And bake a light. Like if you're from money, maybe watch out. Did we learn nothing from Lisa almost losing a toe trying to get her (laughs) steps in in Uggs? You guys have got to wear shoes. (laughs) Yeah, no, this is a great episode. Oh, what else did we learn? Oh, don't lie. If you commit the crime, don't lie and say someone else did it. About the zooming right. in on the cameras, you yeah. know? Just don't lie. It's easier when you don't lie. Sure. Or think of a story, think of a story that doesn't throw a random person under the bus. If you're going to come up with your alibi or like your, you know, your cover story, Don't make it like, oh, someone else is going to take that was like what was so that's what's so fucked up in like another episode that we're talking about is that the person who was guilty tried to pin it on a kid. You know, I can't say it because it hasn't come out yet. We like to keep it secret. Yeah. Listen, this was a great postmortem. Only maybe 30 percent had to do what we learned from the episode. But you know what? I think you have to say how good Wong looks in glasses. Oh, yeah. I wish he wore glasses regularly. We learned we learned that. You know, it was George Huang was part of our lives. That's how we learned. We learned that from this episode. And yeah, it looks good. In and specs. his coffee cup acting is superb. Yeah, he's unbeatable. Let's head into what would Sister Peg do? Our weekly segment where we give you an organization or a resource that you can uh, go to or donate to or just learn more about uh, the topics that we touched on in today's episode. Today, we're going to be highlighting Survivors of Incest Anonymous, which is SIA. The website is SIAWSO.org. That's SIAWSO.org. They empower people who have suffered from childhood sexual abuse and who want to become survivors and thrivers. It's uh, kind of like AA. It's a 12-step self-help recovery program with no dues or fees, confidential, anonymous. Anyone over um, the age of 18 who has been sexually abused as a child is welcome. And um, yeah, it's just a great support network of uh, groups and meetings. And um, there's plenty of tools and literature on their website. So go check it out. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And next week... Join us for Intimidation Game, season 16, episode 14. As always, they're on Hulu, even if they're misnumbered. Peacock. Uh, Isn't that a song by the Pussycat Dolls? What? 
show us your pe- 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 peacock. Oh. oh, maybe it's Katy Perry. It's Katy Perry. <laughs> peacock. Whatever. Um, so watch with us. Don't watch with us. Follow us on Instagram. And thank you for listening. See you next week. messed up is an exactly right production if you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover shoot us an email at that's messed up pod at gmail.com follow the podcast on instagram at that's messed up pod and on twitter at messed up pod and follow us personally at kara clank and at glitter cheese as always please see our show notes for sources and more information thank you so much to svu superfan and our incredible producer hannah kyle creighton and to our sound engineer and personal hero annalise nelson and to henry kapersky for our theme song to carly jean andrews for our artwork thanks to our executive producers georgia hardstark karen kilgariff Danielle Kramer and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun dun. dun. <laughs>